Roger Bell West. Uh, and I'm Paul Dodds. And we have more games than time. Lee couldn't make it this month, uh, so I got in another friend instead. And playing a, a slightly different uh, set of games as a result. And uh, thinking about wargaming, and particularly solo wargaming. What is it? How can it work? I'm looking forward to the discussion. game I've been playing a bit recently, not in person, alas, is The Crew, which is a cooperative trick-taking game, which is a bit unexpected. Uh, you've got four suits, uh, cards one to nine, got four trumps one to four, you deal out the entire deck to the four players, and then you have a set of... each, each level is what they call it. it. It's not very thematic, really. It, in theory, it, it's, it's a sort of space mission, but yeah. Um, you have a set of missions that players have to claim more or less blindly. So whoever's got the full trump, the highest trump, becomes the leader. They get to pick the first mission. And it might be something like, a player has to win a trick with the green five in it. Okay. And... Obviously, they, they, they only know what their cards are. There's very limited risk, uh, communication. So they, they have to decide which of those things they reckon they can do best, um, which of those they pass on to the next player and so on. So they could, they can do that when, winning the green five if they've got the green five and everyone else can just play a lower green and so they win the trick. But if somebody, it, it's the standard um, trick-taking game rule. So if if you've only got one card of a suit, you have to play that card. So if somebody else has the green nine and it's their only uh, green, then 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 your stuff that won't work, and unless you've got rid of that card already. So you have to feel out who has the singletons, who has high cards, and so on, with extremely limited communication. Now. I can't remember whether I've mentioned it on the show before. One of the things that really irks me about limited communication games is whether they don't tell you what you can say. Yes, uh, I've played several games like that, yeah. A few months ago I was playing Bandidos, and it, it's an enjoyable game, but they basically say you can't say what cards you hold, but you can hint at it. And yes. that's that area of uncertainty that, yeah, I really don't get on with it. So what what you have here is you can... Once in a round, normally, you can communicate. What you can say is, this card is the highest of that suit, the lowest of that suit, or the only one of that suit that I have. Okay. And that's that's all you can do, and you can, you can only do it once. Uh, some of the timing of when you do it is quite important. Mm -hmm. Designed for four, uh, you can play it with three with some tweaks. You can play it with five, which makes it quite a lot harder. Um, <laughs> a couple of days ago, was, we're, I've been playing four, four and five with, with mostly the same people on Board Game Arena, and one, one of the players couldn't make it, so we were playing four, and it was, gosh, it was a whole lot easier. And we, we, we rushed through several missions that we'd had trouble with before because we've been practicing in the harder mode. It does sound like some of the missions could have the potential to be quite short. I mean, you're saying if someone uh, needs to get, say, the green five, and then someone plays a high card and loses a trick, essentially, is that the, the mission failed? Uh, yes. Uh, so, right. 
there's hmm, once you've passed out the specific things you have to do, the tasks, um, you can choose to activate a distress signal, which, if you do that, lets you or forces you to pass one card round the table. Interesting. So if you okay. said, you know, I, I, I've said I want to take uh, this particular thing, but but I chose the wrong one, and and it's with the cards I've got, it's really a really bad idea. You can hope for the best and uh, at least get rid mm. of the card that was going to cause you trouble. Uh, and would that option be available on some of the? I assume the, the the later the missions, the harder they become. Yeah, we've got up to sixteen or so, I think. Of, I think it's fifty something. Oh, okay. So plenty of uh, <laughs> plenty of value in the game. I, I haven't been reading ahead. Um, before probably probably taking two or three plays sometimes to get to get a particular one. There is a bit of variability, and this is a thing I've found sometimes as a, as a solo gamer too. Um, when there's a random setup, the difficulty of beating it can vary quite a lot. So, say some some of them. You, you have to get the mission, you have to get the tasks in a certain order. And if randomly that's someone needs to win a trick with the blue two before somebody else wins a trick with the blue three, that can, okay. be, that can be quite difficult. I mean, it can be done, particularly if the trumps are in the right place. It's not automatically impossible, but that's a lot harder. And if, if they, if they come up in the, in the other order and they do just come up randomly, which, which thing you, which thing you have to get. Um, then it becomes a lot easier. Which, yeah, it, it's not unique to this game. It, it's just a slightly unsatisfying feeling of, have I really mastered this particular challenge? You know, it, it, yeah, we say we've played it four times and we've got it on, t- on try number five. Have, have we really mastered that or did we just get lucky with the cards that time? The cards fell in the right place. Yeah. And this can be the nature of a lot of trick taking games. But then I suppose the game is very quick by the sound of things. So you just keep replaying. Yeah, playing around is fairly quick. Um, it's a, it's a little a bit of a shame because you've got limited communication. Um, I don't know how other people feel about this sort of thing. I, I like to be quite chatty over games, not necessarily game related, but at least you know, just generally being sociable in in a way that I'm usually not in person. Uh, <laughs> but that that does because you've got limited communication, it does restrict it a bit. In, ter- in terms of just how chatty you can be, because you, you, you really don't want to be dropping hints. Uh, I, I know one player who does accidentally drop hints, and we've just had to ask him, just please shut up, because yes. that's what the game needs. And yes, I, I find exactly the same. I'm, I'm kind of not comfortable playing in complete silence. You know, mm. gaming is a social thing, so games with limited communications where you, you really aren't supposed to say anything, I find quite awkward. Yeah. As you said, you know, I like to be chatty when I'm playing a game. And I also find with games like that, it can vary with the group you're playing because everyone mm. has different interpretations on what you can and can't say. Yeah, makes um, sense. I've played Shadows Over Camelot where some people just, like you were saying, you know, they, they're they not talking about the cars, but they're very clearly hinting to the point that you know what they are. Mm. Uh, and I find that frustrating, but of course that's the way they want to play the game. So it's very difficult to say to them, well, you know, don't do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, it's. I don't think it's soloable at all because the 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 meat of the game is that that hidden information. Uh, you can play with three with some tweaks. You can play with five. Really, it's designed for four. Uh, yeah, 
That is uh, The Crew, The Quest for Planet Nine by Thomas Singh. Um, I believe there's a sequel out now. Uh, every science fiction franchise starts in space and then goes underwater, so... <laughs> Always. <laughs> then a frozen planet, uh, it's inevitable, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, one question I do have about this, about trick-taking games, is um, I am absolutely rubbish at card counting. So, Oh, me too. Is it something that if you aren't able to do that, you are at a disadvantage? Yes. Okay. Uh, by, by agreement with, with the people I've been playing with, um, I, I have just simply been making notes, and there, there, there is a page from the notebook. Ah, okay. I'm guessing if you have sat around the table, that would be... It's one of those things, it probably isn't in the rules, and it? it's one of those things. It doesn't say you can't in the rule book. I think the usual assumption is that you shouldn't. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, it's very much, you You have to remember that this particular card has been played, and therefore, you know, there aren't any blues above a seven left, therefore you can play your blue seven, knowing it will win any blue. That yeah. kind of thing. Um, yeah. Yes, I... I've got reasonably good at taking notes, and I don't think I'm slowing the game down, but I would be absolutely rubbish at this without my notebook. Yeah, I, w- I would be the same. That's my problem with trick-taking games. Uh, okay, so um, one game that uh, I've been playing recently uh, is Under Falling Skies. Uh, it's a Czech edition mm. games, and I'm going to make a hash of the designer's name. It's Thomas Ullier, but there's a lot of carrion accents above some of the letters, so I'm definitely pronouncing that wrong. I do not know how to pronounce an R with a hatchet. Me neither. I think the S is a sh, so it's probably Thomas. But mm-hmm. anyway, um, it's a uh, a dice placement game, um, and it's something I was I probably wouldn't have paid attention to, but I believe it originated um, as part of the nine card solo. Uh, annual competition that's held on BGG. So I think it did very well a few years ago. Uh, uh, as a print and play. Yeah. Yes. So I'd actually played it as a print and play and enjoyed it, um, which is why I actually paid attention to the hype when it was released. Uh, and they've obviously done a fantastic job with developing the game since then and turning it into something much more than what it was. Um, essentially, it's a classic space invaders. You have a mothership that's threatening Earth. Um, it's launching... Um, uh, alien ships that are descending out of the sky uh, to try and reach your city in order to destroy it. Um, and there's six columns, and the the aliens come down in a. In, in, there's one alien in each column generally, and they they move yeah. down. Um, you have a base underneath your city um, that starts off quite rudimentary, um, and you can expand your base very much like uh, XCOM. So I think there's a lot of video game influences in here. Um, and yeah, what, what what I've seen of of the board makes it look as if you you one of the things you're doing is tunneling to make more space for more stuff in your base. Yes, yeah, you're driving a little digger, and essentially there's a there's a whole series of rooms, which is where you place your your die, um, and the rooms that you have initially um, are not that efficient. So some of them right. to activate might require you to pay two energy, or some of them will modify the die that you played on the room might take one off it or two off it. Whereas as you dig deeper into the base, then you'll find rooms that then don't require the energy to do the same thing or will add things to the die that you place to make the room more efficient. Um, Why couldn't we do this digging before the invasion started? Well, apparently the, the aliens didn't warn them, so which was very sneaky, <laughs> very sneaky aliens. So any aliens mm-hmm. listening here, very sneaky. 
Um, and what happens is um, you roll the six die, one for, essentially for each column. Um, you roll them and you place them in the rooms that you want to activate. As you place them, the value of the die is the number of spaces that the uh, the alien ship in that column moves down. So obviously putting a six into a room will allow you to use that room to its maximum effect. But the, the, right. the trade-off is that radar in that column is going to move down six spaces closer to your city. So, you're, so presumably if you're, if you're going to blow it up, that doesn't matter, but... Yes, exactly, yeah. So it's one of those things where the first time I played it, I was obsessed of trying not to get any damage. You know, I played Missile Command and Space Invaders as a kid, but it's mm-hmm. a bit like Mage Knight. You realise you actually have to, in order to be efficient, you are going to take some damage in Mage Knight. You are going to receive wounds, um, and you have to use that efficiently. So, uh, yes, some of the Raiders are going to hit the hit the city, but you need to make sure that they, it happens when it's best for you. You're very unlikely to actually get through a scenario without any damage unless, you know, the dice are just phenomenal for you, So, which is, of course, unlikely. Yeah. So one of the nice mechanisms I like for a dice placement game is you're rolling... Um, uh, sorry, it's five dice, not six. What I'm talking about, it's five columns and five dice. So um, shows you how much I've been yeah. playing it. Um, two of the dice are white and three are black, uh, grey. The, when you place the grey die, that's it, it's fixed. But when you play a white die, you then re-roll all the remaining dice that you haven't played. So you've got some strategic, well, actually, no, it's tactical. You've got some tactical options about where to use the white die in order to try and generate grey die that might be more useful to you. I think if it was just you rolled five dice and then you place them and that was it, I don't think the game would be quite as interesting. So in in the simplest sense, it's, are my, are my uh, grey dice rubbish? If so, I'll place a white die first and re-roll them. Yes, yeah. And there's yeah. that element of planning because it's also, okay, well, this grey die is useful, so I want to try and keep this, but this one isn't. Um, so I want, mm. you know, I'll try and place the white die. But of course, you know, you then need to play a white die where it's not going to cause you any problems or you can use it to its best effect. So um, it's not just a question, oh, I slap down a white die and hope for the best, so. Yeah, and, and it does sound as if there is actually value in low dice, at least sometimes in some places. Absolutely, yes. Occasionally, you just yeah, you don't want the uh, the alien craft um, coming down too quickly. But in a, as a further complication, the the sky that the aliens are descending through have various symbols on, which can move them around uh, mm-hmm. and can have detrimental effects. So you can they also have spots with little explosions where the those are the occasions where you can actually destroy the alien craft. So. Right. Again, you're trying to maneuver the alien craft onto the spots that are most, you know, most efficient for you. So if you want to destroy them down, get them on explosion. So, so there's a lot going on for, for a dice placement game. I was impressed about the amount of decisions that you have to make, uh, on, as a player on every turn. It's, it, it's, every turn's almost like a puzzle that needs solving or, you know, mm-hmm. you're trying to find an optimum way to deal with the situation. Um, and on top of that, the mothership slowly descending as well, and you have to stop that getting to the bottom. So that's the timer mechanism of the game. If that reaches the bottom of the sky, essentially it's just game over. Um, well, pres- presumably you're not so much stopping it as uh, making sure you win before it yes, gets yeah. there. Yes, which of course is very important because I haven't told you how to win the game, which is research. <laughs> There's a research track. Essentially it's just a, it's a victory point track, and you have to get that up to the top in order to win the game, so... Mm-hmm. They don't go into details about what it is you've exactly researched to defeat the aliens. Um, so, you know, some kind of strange virus thing that you throw them or whatever, but it's just, it's a research the, thing. The peace, love and understanding, Bob. 
Yeah, it could be we just throw peace and love at them and they, they you know, they join us for the betterment of uh, humankind. Um, and on top of all of that, uh, there's a campaign game, which essentially um, introduces scenarios that modify the way you play the game. Um, mm. they, they gradually get harder, but you get characters that give you various benefits and those characters can improve as well as, as time goes on. So the challenges uh, get ramped up, but you have characters to help you deal with that. So I understand that uh, you've got multiple cities, which would be basically defining your um, base. Yes. Yeah, each city has a special ability. So when you play the vanilla game, it has three you can choose from. Um, but obviously, once you've played the campaign game, then you um, you can use all the cities from the campaign game. So there's actually a vast amount of cities. So for replayability, it's got an awful lot. There's also different boards for the sky that the campaign introduced. So once you played okay. the campaign, you could just play a standard game with any of the pieces from the campaign, a bit like uh, the Rise of Fenris with Scythe. You know, you can just yeah. slot them in however you like. And the campaign is fully replayable. It's not a legacy thing where you're trashing um, stuff. So you can you can replay it any time. It has a fairly pulp comic sci-fi narrative that, you know, once you've seen it once, it, <laughs> you don't really need to see it again. But it doesn't spoil anything just to go through the scenarios. And you're only using, I think there's four scenarios in each um, of the campaigns. And you play four campaigns. So you're only using two of them. So you've got unplayed scenarios as well. So. Mm-hmm. But does it, presumably you could run off as, as single games absolutely yeah. yeah so they've they've done a fantastic job of taking something that was a very nice concept but actually you know turning it into something that has an awful lot of replayability um and, and a lot of scope for for mucking around with so that's under falling skies by tomash ulir or something of that sort <laughs> recently i talked about uh, a touch of evil and this, this is a, next, my next one is another of those slightly embarrassing games, which is not mechanically elegant and it's too big and it's too slow, but I love it anyway. And that, that is Firefly, uh, published in 2013. And basically it, it's pretty much the, t- the TV series, the game. Uh, they, 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 did the uh, negotiation properly, so you know every, every card has artwork from from, or usually a still from the series, or some some of them they've had to use some separate artwork. Uh, you have a a captain, you have a ship, you have a small amount of money, and your job is to, well, basically make more. The actual details vary because you, even in the base game you have multiple story cards, and they they define what the victory conditions are. So. Sometimes it's be the first to get this much money. Uh, sometimes it's be the first to be solid with five different contacts, as in you've successfully done a job for them and not got caught. Okay. That kind of thing. And yeah, there's randomness, and that that's the re- that's the real problem from from an elegance point of view. Say say you're, you're crossing space. Flying is an important part of it, but sometimes you can fly eight sectors and you've had no trouble at all. Sometimes the first space you move into drops a reaver cutter on you and you've got to fight or, or lose your crew. Goodness, okay. If you, yeah, the, if you charge off into dangerous places or you take on big dangerous criminal jobs, you can lose everything. Um, if you haven't, you know, there, there are mitigators for the downsides. Um, if you have both a pilot and a mechanic, then when the Reavers jump you, you can do a crazy Ivan, burn a fuel, and get away from them, rather than lose all your 
passages uh, and uh, probably some of your crew as well. Run to the hills. Like, yeah. Um, but at least some of those mitigators are random because you need to get the right crew and gear from the supply decks. Right. And if you... Uh, games with experienced players in them... I've, I've run this play-by-forum um, on Board Game Geek several times. And if you were... There's usually a shopping phase at the beginning. Yeah, everybody picks a planet and starts starts going through the supply deck looking for the stuff they want. But if if you wait too long doing that, then someone is going to jump before you and just take a chance and say, right, well, I can deal with this and this, but not that, but I'll probably be okay. And possibly they'll they'll win. Um, okay. It- I, you, you could absolutely never have a Firefly tournament. <laughs> it, 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 it's it, it's simply not that sort of game. Just, I mean, a, a better player will win more often than a worse player, but it's yeah. not guaranteed. Okay, is is it possible that that you know that bad luck could happen at the very beginning of the game and then set someone back to the point that it's you know, almost impossible for them to catch up? Uh, there are certain choices you could make up front, like starting out out in a dangerous bit of space so that you then have to cross dangerous space to get anywhere else. Okay. Uh, that that could mess you up. On the other hand, at the beginning of the game, you don't have a whole lot to lose. Right, okay. And uh, do your, you respawn? Your, your, captain, your captain never actually dies. Uh, they they can get disgruntled, and one of the bad things that can happen to you is normally a crew member gets disgruntled if you don't pay them, or if you get a moral crew member has to do an immoral job, that kind of thing. If they get a second disgruntled token, they jump ship. Right, okay. So you could lose your crew based on the decisions that you make, which is obviously, yeah. that's in the hands of the player. Your your, cap, your captain, your leader, um, any time a crew member would be killed, you can disgruntle the leader instead. Right. Because they're just that lucky. But if they, if they get a second disgruntle, they, they sack their entire crew. And they all go back to their supply piles. Right, so you keep your captain, but he just gets rid of all the crew. Yeah. Okay. You're all fired. <laughs> yeah. Time for a career change. Uh, one question. Having never seen the uh, television series, do you need to have seen Firefly to get more from the game? I don't think so. Uh, I have seen it. I'm not especially a fan of it. Uh, m- many of the people who like the game are. That's fair enough. Um, I am a fan of Blake Seven. And of Traveller, the RPG, which I think are both big influences on Firefly. Okay. And so while I don't really care about the specific characters, I do like the, the, the micro story generation that you get from this random assortment of things. You know, okay. Well, what, why, why is that extremely competent, but very moral mechanic hanging out with these crew of cutthroats? Right, so kind of making... As could happen more or less randomly, but I think, okay, well, wh- why did that happen? You, 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 and I don't know if you've played A Touch of Evil we talked about last time. Uh, I have, yes. And I had a mm-hmm. lot of fun with it. It's a bit of a guilty pleasure, like you said. Um, yeah, so it, it's a similar feeling to that, uh, which I, I played for the first time recently, uh, of, all right, here, here is the event that has happened. Now, what, what's the narrative reason why that might have happened? Yeah, that's the best way to play games like that. So, yeah, I'm not really wedded to the specific, here is this character's personal arc, because 
this time through the game it's going to be different. Gotcha. But you get that you get the sort of story that happens in this sort of setting, and, and for that I love it. So one one concern I had with Touch of Evil, as much as I enjoyed it, and I don't know if it's applicable here, is essentially with more players, there's a lot of downtime. There's players aren't really yeah. doing much on your turn. And is that the same with Firefly? Yeah, it can be a pretty slow game. Uh, there are some ways to mitigate that. One of the slowest things is when you uh, do a buy action, which is at a supply planet, you look. You first of all look through uh, all the face-up, in other words, people, things that people have rejected or discarded, crew and gear, and particularly late in the game, you might be looking through 30 or 40 cards to say, these are the ones I might want to buy from. Okay, yeah, that would slow things so, down. So the usual way to do something about that is... Uh, that it actually comes with the game. They, they realised that there was a problem with this. You, you have a dinosaur marker which uh, shows the current player. And a, a dinosaur marker. Yeah, as, as, as in Wash's Lucky Dinosaurs. Uh, uh, from, right. From, from, from the series. Uh, I go straight uh, over my head there. <laughs> Why a dinosaur in space, man? Mm-hmm. Uh, and if the, you, you have two actions on your turn. If the second action you have is a buy, then the standard thing you would do is pass, pass the market to the next player. They, they can get on with their turn while you're looking through those cards, deciding what you actually want. And, and unless they actually want to buy at the same place, that, then you can just carry on with that. Also, of course, uh, before your turn, you can, you can look through what's available and decide what you might want. Decide up front. Okay. Uh, there, there are ways of doing that. You, you, it does help to, uh, I'm not quite sure what the, what the proper term would be, but ha- have somebody there who's just saying, all right, come on, keep moving. Because yes. it, it's very, it's very easy for it to fall into chat. Um, as long as the active player is, is, is getting on with their turn, it can, it can run pretty fast. Uh, the, when it does slow down, particularly is on complicated jobs, criminal jobs need aim to misbehave cards or just misbehave cards. Okay. I like the name. Which are, generally some sort of challenge um so it might be with, with a bit more narrative around it, it it might say okay i either you can have a fight and if if you fail in in that skill test then you will have to kill a crew and get a warrant or you can try a harder tech test but if you fail at that you'll you'll only have to try again next turn rather than completely lose the job okay so you Gen- decide you, ha- you generally have a choice okay. um but if uh, a, a complicated uh, criminal job, you might you might be going through four misbehave cards, and for each of them, you think you have looking at okay, I've got these skills, I've got these this equipment, I've got to make this decision about which path to take, and that that can slow things down a bit. Ge- generally, it, it is something of a spectator sport, though. <laughs> uh, w- w- watching people make the decisions that will inevitably drive them to rack and ruin. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, there's a lot of value in that. A lot of fun. And yeah. I'm, I'm trying to work out what, what the proper terminology would be. If, if you, if you want to play a game for the mechanics, if you want to play a game for, for the elegance, for the, uh, skill, the, you know, there's a little bit of all of that, but that's really not what I would choose Firefly for. If you want to play a game in a small flat, it really isn't the game for you. Um, okay. even the base game board is about 30 by 20 inches. With the expansions, it's 50 by 20 inches, 1.3 metres by 50 centimetres. And you probably want about that much area around it for uh, people's ship layouts and the card decks and all those other things that don't actually fit on the star map. 
So yeah, I, I, I have a um, three by one meter table and nothing else happens on that table when I'm playing Firefly on it. I saw the photograph that you sent me. I thought I physically wouldn't be able to play this game in my house. We don't have enough tables, I think. So, <laughs> so it's it's got problems. Um, it's more about the experience, by the sound of things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it, it's if everybody's sitting down in a reasonably good mood and say, "Yeah, let, let us let us have this um, sort of share, shared narrative." With you know, it's obviously lighter than a role playing game session, but I think many of the people who enjoy it are also role players. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, you, you can enjoy that. But yeah, okay, things have really gone badly for me. No, oh, that's just the way it goes sometimes. I'll wait till the next game. One, one question I was wondering, is it possible to actually, do you think you could win the game if you were just being purely legal missions and not doing any illegal missions? It depends on the um, particular story card in play. Right. Uh, for... For some of them, you you will have to do illegal missions. Uh, for some of them, you'll probably have to do immoral missions. That 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 can be a factor in the choice of uh, leader, because some of the leaders are also moral, and they they will get hacked off if they have to do too much dodgy stuff. Okay. M- moral and legal are completely separate concepts in this game, by the way. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that makes sense. One's yeah, one's ethical, and one's uh, <laughs> essentially justice. So. Because yeah, in in the show, the government is definitely not the good guys. Oh, when are they? Even if they do. Even if they do provide a certain amount of, you know, law and order and ship inspections and other other infringements on liberty, just just because you don't want your ship blowing up and blocking the shipping lane. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, if someone was just decided to, I'm going to play this game completely legal, regardless of the victory conditions. You know, say the victory condition was to get the most money. Would that be feasible, or are they going to have to go illegal at some point? It can work. Okay. Uh, it will probably demand a bit more skill. Um, there are there are various balances in this, and the balance has changed over time, particularly with the expansions. In, if you're just playing the base game, then crime is king, because right. get, getting a crew that is good enough to pass misbehaves with reasonable reliability is relatively easy, and crime pays better than other things. In particular, um, with a shipping job, you have to go go to A, pick up the goods, go to B, deliver them, whereas crime, you just need to go to a place and do the thing. Right. Okay. So, crime pays, and and flying flying is a drag on your resources as well as time. However, uh, one of the expansions brought in a whole lot of extra misbehave cards, which are much tougher. Uh, quite possibly in response to this, because it it is it, expanded over over a period of several years. Um. So, I think in its fully expanded form, it's probably a bit more reasonable. I mean, it it's harder work to have a have a strictly legal crew. Uh, some crew members have warrants, meaning if if you meet the law, they might get arrested. Um, and that, then you then you have various illegal goods you can transport, and then there's actually doing crime, all all of which can bring you to the wrong sort of notice. Right. So it, it it's a uh, narrow narrow road to walk down, but it it, it can work as long as uh, yeah. In the right story card, it can de- it can definitely work. Okay, I'm just curious. One of the things that struck me with the with the photograph I saw of the ball setup you sent me was uh, I don't mean to sound dismissive, but it struck me as one of the sort of fantasy flight games, just loads of decks of cards and what have you. I sometimes find they can be a bit overwhelming as a new player when you're playing with experienced players. Not because the game's complex, but because there's so many moving parts, if you like. Mm. This card for this, that deck for that, this roll for this, that check for that. Is that the case with this? Is it a bit 
overwhelming as a new player if you're playing with it can be i th- i think most of it comes down to the same core mechanics i mean there there are three skills fight tech and uh, negotiate and a lot of things rely on a skill test which is you count up the number of icons you've got in your crew add a d6 roll to that and see if you beat the total i uh, think the the cautious player will make sure they have enough to beat the total if, even if they roll a one makes sense yes okay um so i i know one guy who absolutely reckons that the best way to introduce the game is piecemeal the way it was published uh you know start start with the basic set and then add add expansions after each every, every few games on the other hand i just ran a play by forum of this on discussion to Keely lee and i don't think the players were lost i mean there, there were there were questions as as we went on I, I was being a moderator rather than playing because with with all the card decks to handle somebody needs to be able to look at them right um, and and there, there were questions about just how 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 does this particular sort of job work? Uh, piracy in particular is more complicated than it needs to be. Okay, I would I would personally find that would be a good way of playing the game with all the expansions. Actually, doing it play by forum because obviously you can then take your time. Mm. I think I possibly might be slightly intimidated sat around a table with all the expansions sat out and a group of people that have played the game before. Uh, yeah. I, I think if I were doing it in person, I might, I might well start with the full game, but I would make sure the new player could have a look at the rule book beforehand. Uh, I have put on BGG, uh, the big damn rule book, which is basically my compilation of all the rules put into some vague sort of arrangement. Because, you know, you, you've got multiple expansions, uh, published over, over years, uh, interfering with each bit, interfering with different bits of the game and saying, okay, you could also do this instead. Right, so you end up with some uh, kind of advanced squad leader style folder of different rules from different sets. Yeah, so so I, I put everything together and re- rewrote it so as to avoid any sort of copyright claim and also just to make sure things are clearer, including the fact and all that sort of thing. Okay. Um, and so that that seems to be a, a reasonably reliable way to uh, work things. I, for, for this play-by-forum game, I, I posted that at the top of the uh, thread. Uh, there's also a guy named uh, George Krubsky, uh who entered all the cards in a spreadsheet. Uh, with all the expansions, this is something over a thousand cards. Oh my goodness. And I have to say thank you very much to him, because <laughs> without him, I would probably never have started running play-by-forum games of it. As it is, I can look at that spreadsheet and um, write, write a bit of code to pull that out and say, okay, here is a deck which I can now shuffle. Gotcha. And di- distribute to the players and all the rest of it. That yeah, that would make life an awful lot easier. So perhaps um, one question is: Does it play solo? Well, it does. Um, officially, there is only one uh, solo story card with with three outcomes. Um, basically, in the standard game, you have four sorts of action: you can fly. Uh, you can buy, you can deal with a contact, or you can do a work action, which is working working on a specific job. And you get two of those in a turn, and you can't do the same one twice. In the solo game, it, it's slightly modified. Uh, each time you fly, it ends your turn. Okay. You can do you can do each of the other things once if you want to in between flying. Uh, but then you have a 20 turn limit. So you can do slightly more, but in most places you only really want to do one thing anyway. Right. Okay. So it's so, about efficiency effectively at that point. 
yeah, there, there are some places which have um, both goods for sale and a contact you can deal with. So obviously those are the ones you favour in the solo. So the, the standard solo story card, there's just the one of it, um, but it has three goals. So most most of the card says, here is how this slight change to the CERN sequence works. And you can have, as a goal, be solid with five different contacts, end the game with 15,000 money, or successfully pass 20 misbehaved cards. In other words, you're going for a lot of crime jobs. Yeah. Uh, that's, even with a slight change, it's, most, most Firefly games tend to last about 20 rounds total. Uh, with with the standard story card, some of them are a bit longer, some of them are a bit shorter, but w- particularly with with experienced players, it tends to take about that long. So it is actually possible to take the existing um, other story cards with with their various goals in them and say, "All right, I'll put a twenty turn limit on it to use the altered turn sequence and see if I can achieve that in this uh, times." And the BGG community has has, has done some notes on these, say wh- where you might need to tweak things. Okay. One thing that does get a bit fiddly is in the, in the standard game, when particularly when you're flying, um, a lot of things re- re- require the player to your right to do something. So there, there's an Alliance cruiser floating around out there, which you don't want to beat if you've got illegal goods on board. And what, one of the things that can happen while you're flying is player to the right moves the cruiser one space. Okay, so in solo... Uh, yeah, there, there, there are various... I, I've seen flowcharts and... Simple uh, rules, so you can say, "Okay, that that thing has come up, and this is what it will do." Basically, it will come after me. Right. Okay. So it sounds like the kind of game that would definitely be more fun multiplayer. Uh, Solo sounds like an option if you say own the game and you can play it very often. Doesn't leaping out at me as something that you would buy specifically for solo play. Yeah, I've I've played it a couple of times solo, and I had a good time. But quite apart from anything else, it's an awful lot of faff to set up and tear down. Um, good point. Yeah. I mean, if if I if I was if I were already the sort of person who soloed Mansions of Madness, then well, yeah, fine. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I I do know someone who who uh, plays that quite a bit, and who who's got it desperately well organised. Uh, so so setup is really fast, and yeah, well 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 done her. Um, for Firefly, you probably could. I don't think that's where the primary focus of the game is, but it, it's definitely something one could do. It, it has little bits of emergent um, complexity which are fun. I, I think, going, going back to what we were saying earlier, uh, if you know people who are reasonably experienced board gamers who already play reasonably complicated games, it's not a huge burden to... to um, play it with all the expansions as, as the first-time game. I think two of the six uh, players in, in the recent play-by-forum game were, were first-timers, and, yeah, there, there were questions, but they didn't get seriously lost. Okay. It's Oh, yeah, I, I should say it, it, it's verging on being out of print. It's, it's a 2013 game. Um, one of the designers is dead. The other two have left the company. Oops. Uh, are the expansions yeah. hard to get as well now, or becoming increasingly hard? They're, they're starting to be. I, I think they are still doing occasional print runs, but generally they, they will do a print run and it will sell out, and then it will be six months to a year before they do another print run. Right, okay. That's not unusual these days, is it? So. Yeah, but I mean, it, it it's not in the pay a premium price for it, because you won't find it anywhere else category. 
uh, unless unless you need it right now. Uh, there are still copies out there. There are still being more, more ones being produced, but it's it, it's a it it would be a pain to replace if you know your house burnt down and and you suddenly had to get everything all over again. Yes, I can imagine. Yeah, so I'm sure someone would charge optimum for that. So that's Firefly the Game by Aaron Dill, John Kowaleski, and Sean Swigert, who died, I think, in 2016. Uh, okay, so another game that I have been playing recently is uh, D-Day at Tarawa, um, which is designed by John Butterfield, who's a bit of a legend in uh, solo war game design. Uh, well, war game design generally, and it's published mm-hmm. by Decision Games. And it covers the... Um, the sort of the second US Marine Division on the Tarawa Atoll. Um, specifically, uh, the largest uh, island in that, that series, uh, which is the island of Bieto, uh, which is in you know, military terms tiny. It was two miles wide and about 800 yards long at its widest thing. And the Japanese had built uh, airstrip on there. Mm-hmm. And the Marines um, assaulted it uh, up until then. Um, most of their landings have been unopposed. Uh, this was the first time that they actually encountered Japanese resistance. So the game goes on to simulate that. One of the reasons it was uh, such a mess and is so interesting from a gaming perspective was the uh, the island um, is, has a lagoon, or had a lagoon, so it does, on the southern side of the island. Mm-hmm. Um uh, but apologies, the northern side of the island, the map's reversed. So you're facing, north is actually facing you as the player. So I always get confused about that. I'm used to north being at the top of the map, away from me. Mm-hmm. So yeah, um, it's, the lagoon is protected by a coral reef uh, on the northern side, which the Japanese thought that the Marines wouldn't assault there. So all their defences were placed on the uh, on the um, the southern side of the island, which is the open water side. And they had a couple of coastal guns. And mm-hmm. the Marines came in via... Th- over the reef. Um, unfortunately, they had miscalculated the tide or there was a neap tide or something and their landing crafts didn't have the, the the depth to get over the coral reef. So the troops essentially had to be abandoned in the water and wade ashore under fire for 500 yards. They only had some yeah. very small LBTs to get ashore. So it's an interesting conflict to try and simulate um, because of the challenges mm. that, that were faced. And uh, the game... Uh, it's quite complex. Uh, I'd say it has quite a steep learning curve. Uh, it certainly takes you a good, good couple of games to work out what's going on, particularly because the way the, the cut and thrust of the game, it, I don't want to go into too much detail because we'll be here all night, but um, <laughs> the Japanese positions are color coded. I think there's six colors. Um, and each turn on the, on the Japanese fire phase, you draw a card. It's all card driven. There's no dice. Yeah. And the card will have three colours on it, which will tell you the colours of the Japanese positions that are activating that turn. Um, it's a little bit more involved in that symbol, somewhere. But when you so, so you, you so it's, it overall with the cards, it's going to spread out. Um, each one is probably going to activate more or less the same as the others overall, but you don't know what specifically is going to come up. Yes, you don't know when they're going to come up, and you don't know what order you're going to get. So you might have green, red blue on one card and green red brown on another um so the the toughest thing learning the game as a new player is when you draw this card you have to study the map and you have to go through and you have to find all the japanese positions of that color that you think are eligible to activate and then work out if they can actually see any marines and 
then what happens if they shoot at them? Mm-hmm. Um, which, like a lot of war games, becomes second nature when you play it a lot, but the first few games are very, very slow because you, you're constantly thinking, well, I must have missed something or I need to check this or you go back and check that. So it's an interesting mechanism for controlling the enemy activities. It means that as a solo game, you're obviously you're never in full command of the the information which you wouldn't want to be in a war game. Obviously, when you play a traditional war play game, which you usually be two player, you obviously don't know what your opponent's going to do. So the the AI needs to create that uncertainty, which it does beautifully with this. You've no idea which positions are going to activate in any given turn. Uh, so I was looking at this on BGG. I found people have done all sorts of interesting play aids, particularly so. Uh, I think there was something some series of maps that you could say, okay, if I've got red coming up, these are the specific places I need to look at, just just laid out yes. in advance. Uh, I also saw a, an estimated playtime of two to seven hours, which presumably this is scenario-based. It is scenario-based, yes. You can either... The campaign lasted two days. You can either play the mm-hmm. j- literally just the morning of the initial invasions or the first day or the whole two days. Right. Uh, each come with their own challenges and victory conditions. One of the um, unique features of the game, which as a wargamer was, took me a while to get used to, is the fact that because of the nature of the Japanese defences where they currently constructed tunnels and positions, you can't actually perform ranged combat on a Japanese mm-hmm. position unless you have a unit adjacent to it. Which is against all because my wargamer instruments. It's dug it. into their bunker or whatever. Exactly, yeah. So you essentially you need someone to effectively see them in order to direct the fire of everyone else. So mm-hmm. as a wargamer, you're used to, or I was used to, you know, forming optimum fire groups, firing at a range. Um, in this game, you have to have a unit that's adjacent, and of course, moving a unit adjacent to a Japanese position can be potentially hazardous. Each position has <laughs> oh, a. Really? Yeah. Who'd have thought? Yeah. War is dangerous, kids. Uh, each position has um, a projected field of fire and it falls into two categories. It can either be intense or um, steady. And mm-hmm. most of the positions, as you would expect, adjacent, most of the hexes adjacent to the position are intense fields of fire. And intense fields of fire mean that if uh, that position activates, that unit is going to be hit. Yeah. If the if it activates and the uh, you've got a unit in a steady f- stream of fire, it might not get hit. There's other deterministic things that don't really need to go into. So one of the, the toughest things coming into it as a war game is the fact that you are having to risk your units. You're having to move them up to a Japanese position in order to fire mm-hmm. um, and take the consequences. And another unique aspect to it was obviously there was a lot of hand-to-hand fighting. So there's a lot of Japanese units that can only be eliminated by a close combat assault. Mm-hmm. So literally, you can keep shooting them and you can keep shooting them, but you're never actually going to remove them from the board until you go in there with bayonets, um, which, of course, can go either way. It can be very risky. Um, that was an added... coming in, Again, coming in as a war gamer, you would normally only do close assaults, really. You were absolutely confident you had overwhelming odds or there was no alternative. And yep. this one, there's this unit, I could shoot it, but I can't. I have to send the guys in to go and clear them out. I've uh, read similarly that some units you can only eliminate with a flamethrower uh, unit of your own, that kind of thing. Yes, each Japanese unit has a requirement. Um, and you, you have your units have steps. They start off with four steps. And generally, most units at four steps are considered to have all the uh, requirements to destroy any Japanese unit, mm-hmm. with a couple of exceptions. But as they lose steps, i.e. they get hit, they also lose 
their assault um, weapon capability. So, for example, a four-step unit might lose its bazooka capacity or it might lose its machine gun capacity, and therefore it then is no longer eligible to eliminate certain Japanese units. So that's another nice thing. Tactically, you're trying to manoeuvre your units to have the necessary weapons to get the Japanese units out of the way that you want. Yeah, and if, and if you start getting short of people who still got a particular class of weapon, you're going to have to start being quite careful with them. Yes, or basically just charge in hand to hand and hope for the best, eh. which really is not a good military plan. But um, um, one well, of it, it, it's a very atypical battle, and you, you've got something like thirty-five thousand U.S. troops against about five thousand defenders, e- but they took huge casualties. On the attack as well as the defence. Yes. What, yeah. what, what specifically happened? There was about, there was about 5,000 units were actually scheduled to, or, or planned to take over Bieto, the D island in the battle. The, the rest of them were taking over other islands. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, they, they, I think they took 3,000 casualties or something obscene like that. And it was the first time they'd ever come up against, uh, the Japanese tenacity because only, I think there were over 200, 2,500 actual Japanese troops that had some Korean labor mm-hmm. battalions. Only 17 were captured, all the rest were killed. And, and the Marines obviously had never experienced this before. So, so the game by necessity reflects that brutality. Um, which means that, um, it, uh, you can win spectacularly and you can lose spectacularly. Um, which is why I enjoy going back to it because the games have a certain, thrust if you like they follow the same pattern simply because of the very limited geography of the island hmm. um but what actually happens in any given game is, can wildly wildly vary um i played a game recently i played 20 30 games of it and something happened that i'd never ever seen before so um you know it keeps you coming back for more uh i this is apparently uh broadly the same system as uh butterfield's early d-day at omaha beach uh, have, have you played that one? No, I haven't. I was intrigued by the series because I, I do like John Butterfield's design. Um, and when I found out about it, those two games had both been published. Mm-hmm. And I went for Tarawa because, for, for my preference, it's actually a complete battle. Whereas yeah. Omaha is obviously, it was one beach of five. Um, although they were all, you know, self-contained battles from a, from a military perspective. I yeah, wanted but, some. But there's also, yeah, there's also no hard line behind the beach where you say, okay, we've now won. I mean, there, there were the objective lines, but it's not quite the same thing. Yeah. This is you're taking over the island. So, um, so I, I was more attracted to that as, um, yeah. And the scale was appealed to me as well. So that's, and he's, since then he's done several, I think, uh, Pelilu and, uh, Iowa or Iwo Jima. Sorry. Iowa's a state in America. Um, I haven't picked up any of those because I enjoy Tarawa so much. So I don't really feel the need to. They're all variations on a the theme. Um, and you, you're clearly finding plenty of variability in, in the specific games. So. Yes, absolutely. Um, one thing that did happen was John Butterfield uh, went back and revised the rules. Um, um, originally, and I was, I was one of the people on the forums along the lines, it was really, really difficult to win. You had, an awful, had, a, you had to have an awful lot of luck going your way particularly in close combats mm-hmm. and the actual victory conditions were almost impossible. Um, so bless him, he, he responded to the criticism and he redesigned or tweaked a couple of things. He asked the, the community to try them out to make close combat less lethal to the US forces mm-hmm. uh, and to make the victory conditions slightly more obtainable. Um, he tried a couple of other things out, which didn't work. Um, and the community gave him that feedback and, um, 
So he dropped those. And in the end, yeah, they did a second edition with the changes that have been made and it makes the game much more enjoyable because you do actually now have a chance of winning. Um, previously, as I say, you had to have <laughs> a ludicrous amount of luck to win. You could win, but so many things had to fall in your path. It was just very, very difficult. So it's a more rewarding experience now. One of the things I always look for in a thematic game is, I, am I playing a specific person? And if I am, am I making the same decisions that person in the game world would have to make? And presumably here, you're, you're effectively the invasion commander, um, pretty much deciding what, what way you're going to send the troops. So. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and you know, one of the, one of the compromises in almost any war game is as a player, you have a, a complete view of the entire battlefield, which, Mm-hmm. No one would in that situation. So, you know, you, you have a lot more information as a player than anyone would in that situation, but you're still making decisions that essentially someone on the ground would make. It's just you happen to know what the guys on the next beach are doing as well. So. Yeah. This area, you, you've got some radios and things. It's, it's not as, uh, different as a setup as, say, being able to see the entire battlefield at Waterloo. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Which is a very difficult thing to simulate. Yeah. So you have to, you have to make a compromise. And like any war game, you're looking for, you know, realism, but playability as well. Mm-hmm. And you also don't want to have a game where essentially you're just simulating what happened historically. You know, you want some, some scope for different things to happen. So. Well, presumably you, you could follow the historical battle plan, but the situation you meet is going to be slightly different each time. So that's not going to be the right answer. Absolutely. It's that classic quote, isn't it? That, you know, any military plan loses its meaning on the first contact with the enemy. So, which mm-hmm. is true of any war game as well. So, so it's a, uh, this does not mean you can get away with not having a plan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're going to, the plan's going to go screw. So let's not have a plan. Um, so it's a, I find it a very rewarding game. So it's a, it does require an investment of time. Um, like a lot of war games or possibly even scenario games, it's best played the whole thing, which mm-hmm. of course entails seven or eight hours, but I generally play it over a weekend and leave it set up. But, um, it's a good system. And when you become familiar with it, um, certainly when you become familiar with the map rather than the system, you, you know exactly when red comes up, you know where you need to be looking for the red Japanese position. So the games mm-hmm. do speed up with, with experience. What's, what's it like for table space? It's not that big. Um, it's a, it's, um, six panel, you know, sort of map. So, which mm. is a fairly standard. So I couldn't tell you the dimensions. I'm afraid I'm, I'm not recouping measurements, but it fits on my dining room table. So it can't be that big. Mm. Um, and there's quite a low counter density. Um, cause there's actually, you know, not a huge amount of u- units are actually involved in the engines, you know, 5,000 men, 5,000 men. That's quite low density. So there's not a lot of counters. Um, and a set of cards, so it doesn't take up a lot of space at all. So that's D-Day at Tarawa by John Butterfield. So uh, moving on a little from, from that specific game... Um, one player war games in general are a thing that I'm personally really not that aware of. I've done quite a bit of two player war gaming over the years. But how, how does this work? What, what makes a good one player game? I, traditionally with, with the all open information, obviously you, you could just change sides. 
play play each side separately but but you know just as as with chess that's not very satisfying because you always know what the other guy's planning exactly so how how does the one player war game do that do better um ooh, that's a that's a big question and uh, <laughs> better's possibly not the right uh, it's well it's presumably more more enjoyable than one player chess changing ends yeah yeah it's definitely i mean a lot of war gamers do do the left hand versus right hand and i when i was younger i did do that um but it's not something that i enjoy doing and i definitely can't do it now i'm older um and it's interesting there's definitely been a you know a renaissance in solitaire gaming within the last what 10 15 years mm-hmm. um lots and lots of games now come with solo modes built in and i think that's thrown over into war games as well. I think war game designers are now coming up with ideas for one player war games. Yeah. Whereas prior to that there weren't actually a lot. John Butterfield had done a few. There was RAF, there was Ambush, there's Raylon mm-hmm. There's a couple of them. But you know, back in the eighties and nineties when I started war gaming, there weren't many. So you had to if you were playing Solitaire, you were doing two handed. Yeah. So the the difficult thing I think is actually it's designing an AI that's going to challenge the player but is also easy for the player to implement i think that's the biggest challenge that's probably true for any solitaire game but i think with a war game you have the added complexity with a a good war game you're looking to create or recreate a historical conflict um in a way that's challenging and enjoyable to the player so it's playable and realistic but also um you know it's essentially you're not just repeating the same things. You're not following history. You need some variety. So actually coming that up with that in a solo AI, I think is very, very difficult. Um, and some war games get it more right than others. So certainly in a way that's manageable to the players. Um, I'm thinking about solo games in general. I've, I've certainly seen people say, yeah, this is, this is a great AI system, but it takes me longer to play the AI's turns than to, than to play my own. Yeah, absolutely. And so. the, the coin system is probably a good example of that. You know, it's very clever what the AI bots do uh, in the coin system. And um, that's a huge debate about whether, you know, what is a war game? Because mm-hmm. people have been argue- arguing all over the uh, forums about whether any of the coin games are actually war games. But, <laughs> you know, they have... I've, I've heard people talking recently about conflict games where you have to do you know, something like Twilight Struggle or you know, games of that sort of where you're pushing a country around in effect. Yeah, yeah. I mean, technically, you know, under Falling Skies, which we talked about earlier, could be considered a war game. You're blowing up mm-hmm. alien ships; they're trying to destroy your city. You know, it's, but that's a that's a whole other topic. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, so actually coming up with something that's easy for the players, unlike the very complex coin bots, I think is very very difficult. And my experience of playing solo war games is you either. John Butterfield, I have a lot of time for his designs because they are able to capture some of the complexity of the, of the conflicts that he simulated with AIs that are reasonably straightforward to implement. Um, I've also got quite a lot of time for Dan Vessing games, although they don't really tend to go for necessarily historical accuracy. They're more kind of your Arnold Schwarzenegger reinterpretation of World War II kind of things with lots of explosions and, you know, I remember, they remind me, mm-hmm. playing a Dan Vesson games remind me of reading the, com- the car- Commando books when I was a kid in the 70s, you know, so. Um, so it, the, 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 the only games of, of that uh, series, of, well, only DVG games I've played are the, um, 
later, some of the later series, so Thunderbolt Apache later, Hornet later. Yeah. Which I think are, you know, biased somewhat towards the side you're playing on in terms of our kit is wonderful and usually works and the enemy kit is a bit rubbish. Uh, yeah, boo, boo rah, rah yeah, absolutely. Uh, but they're certainly not the only games that suffer from that. Yeah, absolutely. But, um, you know, they're, they're never out to create a accurate representation of what happens. So, you know, that's, they've kind of opted for the, uh, the easier route, if you like, I suppose, of doing something that is perhaps more playable than realistic. So, hmm. but it, it's like any kind of genre game, I suppose you, you know, different games for different moods. If, if I yeah. want to play a really in-depth war game, I'll dig out Tarawar or something like that. Sometimes I might just want to, you know, fly an Apache helicopter around and blow stuff up. So, you know, you just <laughs> crack open the damn burst and go. So different strokes for different folks. So, um, I'm just trying to think of, I mean, one of my favorite solo games is called Navajo Wars. And I suppose it would be considered a war game. Um, because essentially it's representing the struggle of the Navajo peoples against, um, First the Spanish, then the Mexicans, then the Americans. Um, yeah. And the AI in that is just genius. Joe, Joe Top and the designer just came up with something that is able to do really, really complex decisions on behalf of the AI with literally just a few counter shuffling by the players. So that, right. that to me is a, is a pinnacle of an AI, solo AI in a war game, what, what you can achieve. But of course, it's, it's a solo AI that is specific to that game. And what he was trying to do in that game. If you were to try and implement it in another game, it probably just, you know, it would fall flat. So it's in, integrated with what, what the, what the, uh, forces can do for the options they historically had. And so, and so on. Yes. Yeah. Cause I think, for example, with a lot of Euro games, you know, you, they'll come up with the mechanics and then choose a theme to fit on top of it. Absolutely mm. fine. I have no problem with that. Obviously, when a designer sets out to make a war game, they are looking to recreate a particular concept. So you could argue that it's like the theme has come first. And then, yeah, they, well, as you were you know, saying with Tarawa, um, the, the specific need to model that shallow water and wading and so on is a thing that is not like most other battles. And if, if you, if you were writing a generic beach assault game and then had it as an extra rule, it would be a different shape of game. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So it's, it's, interesting for me to see how different designers uh, approach this um the ones that i i prefer playing are actually games that are designed for solo there are some war games that are designed to be multiplayer but you can play solo uh, conflict of heroes awakening the bear springs to mind mm -hmm. which is a, a, a tactical eastern front game which actually has a a card driven uh, ai which is is very good um, but because it was, it was specifically, you know, it was designed originally as a two player game. Essentially, the AI is trying to work around the, the framework that's been created for the two player game. So I actually found it quite difficult to implement. You're having to make some quite complex decisions. The card will give you some guidelines, but then you have to make some quite complex decisions on behalf of, of the units. Um, yeah. what's this unit going to do? You know, very clever. Um, but for me, I would actually prefer something that had been designed specifically as a solo game because with that done, you know, one of the designer's concerns is going to be to have something that's easy for the player to implement. So. Yeah, I've, I've seen uh, third party solo systems for something, something like Undaunted Normandy, which is relatively simple in that you have quite a small board and generally not that many active units on it at a time. So it's 
comparatively easy to say, okay, in this situation, do this. But it, it's still a fair bit of complexity compared with what you can get away with if you just have another human at the, across the table. Yeah, absolutely. Which, you know, as, as someone who plays solitaire war games and solitaire games generally, um, I still would very much rather play a game face-to-face with someone, particularly a war game. You know, no matter how good the AI is, um, it's never going to simulate what another player can do, which is one of the reasons why I, I think I'd gravitate to games that are specifically solo, because they've never mm-hmm. been designed to have someone else at the other end of the table, if you see what I mean. Yeah, one one of my uh, wargaming preferences is uh, your post World War Two naval, and be, being fair, a lot of that is hunting for the enemy, hunting for the enemy, hunting for the enemy. Missiles fired, it's all over. Yes, yeah. Um, and the, I I have seen solo games. I'm, I've I've seen games where you're you're basically a, a U-boat hunting North Atlantic convoys. So so it can be done. Yeah, um, but but it's challenging. It's very challenging, yeah. Um, and there are, there are, speaking of thinking of U-boats, there are a lot of games that essentially, um, yeah, B-17, that's another one from back in the day. Mm-hmm. That's had a bit of renaissance. There's a lot of games, U-boat hunters, that kind of thing, which are essentially, you roll a die, you make a decision, you roll a die, you look up on some tables, which will direct you to some more tables, which will direct you to some more tables, or to simulate, you know, what's kind of happening. To me, they're more kind of narrative games where... yeah. I, there's very little player agency in my opinion, so I'm not a big fan of them. You know, it's like, okay, well, I'm going to decide to shoot down this fighter, so I roll on the table and that's it. You know, I, I want something that's a little bit more involved. Um, but it's a good way of doing it and creating experience. I can, I can see their value and why people enjoy them. It's just, um, hmm. a, a thing I've, I've learned to look for since, since I used to play Battletech back in the day, um, of, Okay, my, my decision ends over here, and then there is a large chunk of rules happening, and then we get an output. Yes. Can we make that chunk of rules smaller, please? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, as small as possible, please. Which is, which you know, it's an art as much as a science. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, I tend to gravitate towards games that are specifically designed for solo when I'm playing war games. Um, much rather play things two-handed. Um, I'm just trying to think. Do, do you find that the uh, enemy AI has bugs that you can? recognize and exploit or are they reasonably able to it depends on the game some games you can um something like tarot and no you can't there's no real way to exploit it the very tightly designed system um Mm -hmm. just nothing possibly not in tarot no that's definitely true of other games i think so um but and that that can be the nature of any game with an AI, unfortunately. You know, sure. you can start gaming the system a little bit, so which is why they're so difficult to come up with, I would imagine. So, mm-hmm. um, but you know, it's there's other. Generally, I like strategic games, but of course, they're really yeah. hard to do a solo. Tactical are much easier to do. It's much easier to have decisions based on smaller scale, what have you. So, I just I can't think of any sort of grand sweeping strategy war games that are either A, designed for solo, because I'd imagine that would be a nightmare, or B, kind of play well for solo. I'm sure there'll be loads of people who will mm. contact us and say, ha absolute nonsense, you know, there's this, that, and the other. But um, Yeah, give, give us a shout, let us know. Ideally, lend us a copy. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Tell me, I'll buy it and I'll play it. So, <laughs> um, But, um, yeah, I'm just trying to think, the, the Dan Vesting games, the the, um, the Field Commander series, I, I quite enjoy uh, the Field Commander Napoleon game. Um, one of the main criticisms about that series of games is basically you're rolling randomly for AI movement, mm-hmm. um, which for the Napoleonic period 
fantastic. It works really well because um, that's often happened. Orders didn't turn up. A horseman, run, you know, rider delivered the wrong orders to the wrong thing. So you often had instances of troops just moving off in bizarre directions. Um, or, or somebody actually did get the right orders, they were, they, but they didn't apply anymore because the situation had changed since they were written. Exactly, yeah, you know, or yeah. they have a few glasses of wine and they weren't paying much attention, you know, I'll do this in the morning, so that, that happened a lot as well. Um, mm. So that system works really well uh, and is a lot of fun, and again, that's designed purely for cello. But once you start projecting that onto um, modern, sort of an era of modern communication, so they did Fleet Commander Nimitz, which was essentially the Pacific War, it starts becoming ludicrous. So, you know, you'll have a force of Japanese ships and one carrier might sail north and another carrier might sail south. And eventually the entire thing just splits off into all these tiny, easily defeatable forces. So that kind of thing is just, you know. So I suppose the point I'm trying to make is some mechanics work better thematically based on what they're trying to simulate. So that kind of random element, fantastic Napoleonic, not so good for anything else. Now, a, th- a thing I first saw in uh, Chain of Command, two fat lardies, uh, is the jumping off point. So th- this is basically a, a tactical game, a platoon level, uh, World War Two, And rather than say, you know, we, we set up here, you set up there, we say, right, the, these are the jumping off points. The, these are how f- the, the points to which we had scouted before we realised the enemy was out there. Okay. And ditto the enemy. And so th- those are the points from which I can deploy my troops. Some of them, some of them may may be um, blinds, but the, you know, the enemy knows I have I have these six points across the map. Maybe only two of them are actually going to be active. Right. Okay. But as he, as he's setting up, he has to bear all that in mind. Is 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 there and is there any attempt to do that sort of fog of war, or is it, is it generally perfect information? There have been attempts, um, and again. For me, they've fallen a bit flat. One of the things I'm thinking of Conflict of Heroes again, um, there are some scenarios where you have hidden units and they've got rules for the AI implementing the hidden units, rules mm-hmm. for how it reacts to your hidden units and what it does with its own hidden units. But for me, it just didn't work. They essentially, they were just too random. Yeah. Uh, you know, he would, the AI could end up revealing a unit that was actually in the middle of nowhere or it might end up revealing a unit um, that suddenly is completely surrounded by your forces and you just annihilate it. So um, yeah. it just didn't work. So, which is one of the reasons I'm very, I very much enjoy playing block war games, um, two player, because you. This it, is your, your old Greek spiel type thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, which go all the yeah. way back to Stratego, effectively. I don't know if you've. Do you remember Stratego? Well, technically, they go back to the Prussian military in the 19th century. Well, right? yeah, okay, which is where Stratego <laughs> came from. So, um, yeah. But yes. Uh, yes, yes, I do. I was very bad at it. <laughs> yeah, because I'm the same because it's a memory game, effectively, more than anything else. But block war games use the single concept. You obviously, you can't see your, you, the enemy units until you engage them. And I really enjoy those as two player. Um, I, I've got, in fairness, I actually haven't tried any games that purport to be a block war game and you can play solitaire simply because I just, for me, I don't see how that could possibly work. Hmm. So I've just kind of stayed away from them. Um, once again, if there's anyone listening who does have a block war game that plays solitaire, fantastic. Let me know and I'll, I'll try it. But so I, I've kind of stayed away from them for that reason. But you know, face to face, I absolutely adore them. Yeah. So, so I think if, if we're going to come to any sort of conclusion, it's there, there are limitations, but a good designer is aware of the limitations and, and can try to design a game that will take it, well, take advantage of them. 
Yeah, absolutely. Or, or, or at least not be crippled by them. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, th- there are obviously better designers. And, other, and also, you know, these are my, obviously, my opinions, different different strokes for different folks. There's a lot of people oh, that sure. have absolutely no problem with the random movement in Fleet Commander Nimitz, for example. It doesn't bother them, you know. So um, it's, it, it, you know, these are just my proclivities, if you like. So, yeah. Yeah, I think if, if there's one thing um, that, that, that would be a... a, a fundamental philosophy for, for for this uh podcast it's yeah that's what works for me uh you you're different yeah absolutely um which is why you know it's great to hopefully there's people listening to us that will have different opinions and um you know give me some suggestions of games more games to try so, um one game i'd like to mention uh if i might just because th- again this is pure personal bias i have a lot of love for it is code word cromwell mm-hmm. which is uh completely um a historical it's all about the successful German invasion of um, Britain and is essentially a tower defence game. But um, then Went the day well, the board game? Exactly, it is. Went the day well, the board game. And it's just so much fun because of that. Um, it, possibly slightly uncharitable for me to mention that um, because it's, I think it's long out of print and it was very expensive when it came out. So it's, it's almost impossible to get hold of now. But it's, it, it's just one of these games that came out of nowhere for me. And as a war game... It does all things that I wouldn't like. It's a dice chucker. It's essentially a tower defense. It's completely ahistorical, but there's something about that game that just—it's utterly, utterly captivating. So, as I understand it, you've you've got specific named people, and some of them are going to do specific named inconvenient things. Yes, yeah. There's an entire book with the backstory for all the village. So, it, and it's very well written. <laughs> the, the the village is alive. It comes alive. So, um, mm-hmm. so it's fantastic. So that's that's definitely a. Um, that's a blip on the war games, but worth mentioning because it just goes to show what you can do with the format, you know, in the hands of a good designer. Um, obviously very much restricted to to that single environment, that single group of people. Yeah. But, and, but still en- enough variation. There are pe- there are people still playing it. Uh, yes. And I'm one of them. So, um, mm-hmm. so yeah, that's, uh, that's certainly an exception, but one that I, you know, it's worth mentioning, I think so. was more games than time number six i think uh if you have any comments about anything uh, or just want to chat get in touch with us uh website is tekeli.ly slash mgtt and hope to uh, be back again next month thank you very much and thank you for inviting me roger yeah most welcome